So yes, I, I know many of you. Um, I have not met some of you. As, as Tyler mentioned, my name's Jesse Kemp. I'm a youth pastor down in Corvallis, Montana, about 45 miles south. That's my wife, Megan, and less visible is uh, my son, who will be born in March, so we're pretty excited about that. Um, Megan and I met in San Diego, but after a year of marriage, we moved up to Montana so that she could go to grad school here at the University for Physical Therapy. And after a few months of really um, searching hard in a, in a discouraging, um, discouragingly looking for a church home, we found Sovereign Hope, what was then called Sheck. And I have to say that the uh, roughly three years that we spent there was so formative in, in my spiritual life, and it did, it did so much for me. And when I found the, the position in Corvallis and I was leaving, I was really excited, and I'm still very excited about what God is doing in our lives down in the Bitterroot, but it, it was uh, bittersweet to move on because I felt like my passion for ministry, my passion for the gospel was really fostered um, at Sovereign Hope and in amongst people like this, and it always makes me happy on Thursday nights to know that down in Missoula, the gospel is being proclaimed on the campus of the University of Montana. So with that, I would like to turn to our passage tonight, Mark chapter 6, verses 30 through 44. And as I'm sure that you recall from Tyler's preaching in recent weeks, but just to kind of set the stage for what's going on at this point in the gospel of Mark, um, Jesus has been training up his 12 disciples who will become the 12 apostles, the foundation of the early church. And he's giving them this special attention and he's explaining parables to them in ways that other people don't really get. And he's, he's sending them out for the first time. That's, that's what happened at the, uh, at the beginning of chapter 6. You probably have a heading in your Bible that says Jesus sends out the 12 apostles. And for the first time, they're going out into the region of Galilee, this homeland of Jesus who was raised in Nazareth, which is in the northern part of Israel. And they're doing things like casting out demons and they're healing people. And most importantly, they're proclaiming the gospel. And they're doing this without Jesus, without their rabbi. And so at the beginning of our passage tonight, what's happening is that they're, they're coming back to him. And, and we're going to find out what happens as they return from their first missionary journey. And I, I have no idea what's going on behind. Oh, yeah, that, that's, that's Mark chapter 6. So um, I understand, as I understand it, you guys are approaching Mark this semester with the question of who is Jesus. And as I, as I kind of pondered what I wanted to say tonight, I, I thought that um, that's such a great way to read the Gospels. And I love that you guys are reading the Gospel with that question in mind, because I think too often what people do is they don't, they don't ask that question to the Bible. They ask that question to themselves. They decide upon an answer of who Jesus is, and then they sort of pigeonhole passages out of Scripture into, that, that fit with their understanding, and then they kind of have their own version of Jesus, whoever that may be. Um, for instance, a lot of people like to believe in the always benevolent, totally accepting Jesus who never said anything that was harsh or rough on the ears. And, and so once they, they have, have that idea formed in their mind, they'll find passages or, or verses like, Judge not, lest you be judged, and they'll wag their finger and they'll say that to people, not really understanding anything about what he meant by that, because they haven't gone to the Word first in humility to understand what it has to say about who Jesus really was. So I'm excited to, to get into that question tonight in this passage, and I, there's three aspects of who Jesus is, of his identity, that I want to pull out of these verses that we're reading tonight. 
Um, not, not three different answers to the question per se. I think that there's really only one, question, one answer to that question of who Jesus is, but it's, it's many faceted. You know, Jesus is a very complex individual being both man and God and our Savior and our friend and so many other, um, there's so many other aspects to him that I'm simply going to mention three. And so the, the first one that I wanted to highlight tonight is that Jesus is a shepherd who cares for the whole person. As we see, uh, I'll, I'll read a few of the, these verses again, starting in verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. The, the disciples are returning back to Jesus, and they've just gone out and they've done ministry for the first time on their own. And you can imagine that they were likely excited and they were elated at the success that they had had through Christ and through the power of the Holy Spirit. But you can also imagine that they were completely exhausted. And rather than um, looking down upon them and scorning them for their weakness or lording over them the fact that Jesus had experienced so much more and had endured through it all, Jesus' response to their their uh, fatigue is that they, we need to go away for a while. We need to rest for a time. We need to take a Sabbath and recover. We'll debrief together. When, when his disciples come to Jesus tired and worn down, he tells them that they need to rest. Because as you can imagine, when you're, when you're doing things like miraculously healing people of diseases or, or disabilities that they've struggled with their entire lives, or you're casting demons out of them that are afflicting them, word gets out. And people would have been coming to them in droves, as we'll see later on in this passage. There's a lot of people here. And, and just, just think, if you stood out in the middle of the oval, while everyone in Missoula who had any problem whatsoever that they thought you could potentially help, help them with came to you in a line, and you just heard need after need after need. How draining that would be. And so he, he takes them away. He cares for his disciples as, as entire people. He doesn't just want them to be robots in this cog of ministry that, that he has in mind that he's teaching them. He, he wants them to know that it's okay to take a break. But of course it doesn't work, right? I mean, that's, that's our whole story. They, they go off, but as we'll talk about in a few moments, they're presented with these crowds again. And I, I wanted to remind you all of the response that Jesus sees when he's confronted again with these people who he is actively trying to get away from, right? I mean, there's no dancing around the fact that Jesus is taking the apostles and he's getting in a boat and he's saying, we need to get away from these people. And they find a way to track him down. Because the Sea of Galilee is it's not very big. It's not even really a sea. It's a lake, and it's like a fifth the size of Flathead. So if you get in a boat and try to go across it to another section, people can loop around pretty quickly and meet up with you again. So when, when he sees them, he, he says, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. So his goal was, um, was foiled, so to speak. Obviously, being God, Jesus never had a plan go awry. But as he's trying to take his disciples away to rest, these people track him back down. And rather than being frustrated, rather than getting angry with these crowds that are so persistent and so needy and, and have so many things that they need him to address, he has compassion. 
when he sees these people, his heart breaks because he sees that they're like sheep without a shepherd. They're leaderless. They have a great need of him, and he's going to supply it. Notice the first way that he does that. It says that he begins to teach them many things. Based on, on uh, this passage and the parallel passage that we'll look at a little later in John, we can pretty safely assume that these people were not coming to Jesus for teaching. That wasn't their primary goal in approaching him. They wanted food, they wanted healing, they wanted notoriety, they wanted him to attack Rome. They wanted all sorts of crazy things. Some of those aren't so crazy. I guess food's not that crazy, but I like food. But he, the first thing that he does for them is that he's, he, he begins teaching them because teaching is what they really needed. The message that Jesus had, even if they didn't understand their great need for it, he knew that they had a great need for it. And so that's the first thing that he presents them with when they come to him. He begins teaching them many things. But of course, it doesn't stop there um, when, it's, when it has Time has gone on, and, and they're in this place. They've, they've purposely chosen this desolate place that's far away from all of the other villages, and these people have not eaten. And I know that this is about the feeding the 5,000, but you can imagine if that's just the men, then you have probably like 5,000 women and maybe like two kids per couple. We're talking about maybe up to 20,000 people here. There's a lot of people here, and none of them have any food. And, and so <laughs> there's this really funny exchange. Um, it says, send them away into the surrounding countryside, this is verse 36 again, and villages and buy themselves something to eat. This is the, the disciples' idea. S send them out, have them walk to the nearest place where they can buy food. There's no consideration of whether they have the means to do that, whether some of them are so faint from not having eaten that they'll even make it to where they can buy food. And Jesus says, you give them something to eat. It would have been really exciting and really, really hard to follow Jesus. If you were one of his disciples and you're presented with 20,000 people and you have nothing but a few loaves of barley biscuits and some fish, and, and he says to you, give them something to eat. I think Jesus purposely gives his, his disciples a task that he knows are, is too big for them because he wants them to understand who they're dealing with. And they haven't gotten it yet, right? I mean, up to this point, the disciples have seen Jesus do a lot of amazing things. They've seen him perform acts that only God could do in, in commanding demons to come out of people and healing people, but they still haven't gotten it. They still don't get that no food when you're with Jesus is not a very big problem. He'll take care of it. But Jesus, knowing that they haven't understood that, tasks them with feeding the people because he wants them to understand their weakness. We can't supply this need. And then Jesus, in turn, will show them his strength by working through their weakness, as he does. Their response is sarcasm. Shall we go buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? I don't think that that's a serious question. That would be kind of like saying, should I pull out $15,000, Jesus, that I have laying around here and go buy food for this amount of people? I think that there's a lot of sarcasm in that reply. A lot of times we find the disciples talking to Jesus like he doesn't really know what he's doing or he's idealistic, and it's, it's before they really understand exactly who he is. But he, he tells them to go see how many loaves they have. And after doing so, as we'll, we'll talk about in a moment, he, he creates enough food for the entire crowd and he provides for their physical needs. 
So he, he first taught them, and then he fed them. He cared about their spiritual well-being, whether or not they had a knowledge of him that could be saving to their souls, and then he made sure that they had food to eat, which would be saving to their bodies so they wouldn't faint on the way home. He persists in taking care of this basic need because he really cared about it. And I think sometimes in our faith, we can become so enamored with the spiritual side of things that we forget the importance in ministering to people and the basic needs that they have, be they material or spiritual. One of the uh, 12 that would have been there witnessing this was James, the brother of Jesus. And years later, he would pen a letter to a, a church that was in dire need of some instruction. Flip over with me or look up on the overhead in, in James chapter 2. This is, these are verses 14 through 17. James writes, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace and be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. James, in the, in the task of addressing the problem of, of dead faith, which is really no faith at all, in, in faith that doesn't express itself, doesn't well up with works of, of love and compassion for other people, is saying, how could you say to someone who comes to you starving, Jesus died for your sins, let that fill you. There, there's your meal. You know, we kind of spiritualize everything and, and act like their physical needs aren't that big a deal. And he's, he's flat out saying... What good is that? It does people no good if we only care about one half of who they are, but Jesus cared about the holistic person, and he wanted to meet all of their needs. And the way that he did this reveals the second thing that I wanted to point out about Jesus' identity tonight, and that's that Jesus is the Lord of creation. As I mentioned, he was probably dealing with somewhere, somewhere in the neighborhood of 20,000 people. He had the five loaves and the two fish, and he causes it to multiply miraculously. This is one of the many signs that we read about in, in the Gospels. But there's a couple things that I'd like to point out about this sign and about all of the signs that Jesus performed. They're called signs because they point to who Jesus is. He never did miracles just for the sake of doing them. It was always for a point. He was, it, he was driving home who he was. And in this case, this particular miracle was very uh, full of meaning. It would have been pregnant with meaning, especially to this Jewish crowd, because Jesus was causing bread to come down miraculously where there was no bread to pe feed people who otherwise had nothing to eat. Some of you are probably already thinking shades of Exodus right now, and I'm sure that that's what the crowds were thinking about too. If we look over at Exodus chapter 16, verse 4, just by way of reminder, this is the Israelites after they've been brought out of Egypt and they're in the desert. And it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's, a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. So, in this particular miracle, in the way that Jesus 
is, is performing it, he's, he's really not only pointing to the fact that he has power to do amazing things that are beyond the abilities of a, of a mere man, but he's also starting to identify himself with the God of the Old Testament, the only Bible that would have existed at that point. He's saying to this crowd, it's not just that I can make bread where there was no bread, but I'm going to feed you bread from heaven that you didn't have and you wouldn't have any food otherwise, just like Yahweh God did for your ancestors in the wilderness. And so subtly, implicitly, he's beginning to align himself with God the Father, which is really going to be the, the declaration, the statement that Jesus makes about himself that will eventually enrage the scribes and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law of his day so much that they would have him killed. But he did this, he did it slowly because he, he knew that the timing had to be right. He couldn't show up and on the first day of his three-year ministry say exactly who he was, exactly what he came to do, how he was going to do it, and then go die on the cross. It was a plan that unfolded over a three-year period as he let out more and more of himself until in some cases it caused true and sincere belief in the people who had formed the early church, and in others it caused such rage and hatred and vitriol that they connived to have him killed on the basis of false witness, and in so doing, played right into his hands. As I mentioned, when Jesus performed signs, he was always doing it for a purpose. Whenever we see him in the gospel doing miraculous things, he's always feeding, he's healing, he's raising from the dead, he's calming storms, he's casting out demons, he's dealing with real problems. Jesus wasn't some illusionist who came for the sake of doing parlor tricks to show off to people so that he could impress them. In fact, we often see Jesus avoiding doing signs for people because he didn't want people to believe in him on the basis of his miracles. In one case, he took a blind man aside. He took him out away from the pool of Bethsaida, and he, he healed him in secret and then charged him to tell no one because he didn't want the, these, um, these people who were going to follow him just because he could do cool tricks. Jesus desired people who, who were going to believe him on the basis of the word that he proclaimed rather than the signs that he performed. Um, John chapter 20, this is a rather famous scene post-resurrection when Jesus is, a, is approached by Thomas, who, um, poor Thomas, he's known as Doubting Thomas forever and always now because he did not, he refused to believe that Jesus was really raised from the dead until he had actually seen him and felt the wounds. And in verse uh, 27 we read, Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. And put, on your, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Obviously, Jesus in this case is referring to seeing him in person post-resurrection, but I think that the principle applies here and elsewhere in Scripture that Jesus was desirous of followers who would place their faith in him because he proclaimed who he was and he wanted the sheep who would hear his voice and know him for their shepherd and who would follow him and didn't need him to back it up. I think we probably can remember what happened when the Pharisees demanded of him a sign. He said a, it's a 
wicked and crooked generation that demands a sign, and you will be given none except the sign of Jonah, which he was referring to his death and his resurrection. Part of the, the, the problem with the, the Jewish perception of Jesus had to do with their expectations for him. And that gets to my third and final point about who Jesus is and who he's revealed as in this passage, in that Jesus is the bread of life. And we're going to spend some time unpacking exactly what that means. But turn over, if you would, with me to John chapter 6. We're going to look at a parallel passage. Um, John, the Gospel of John, also records this miracle. And we're not going to look at the miracle itself in John, but we are going to look at the response to it. So to put ourselves in the minds of the people who were listening to Jesus on this occasion, just for a moment, they knew from their Old Testament prophets that there was a Messiah coming, and they believed that, and they knew that he was going to be a son of David. They didn't really understand, it's almost certain that they didn't understand that he was actually going to be God in the flesh, but they thought he was going to be a man sort of after David's own heart as David was a man after God's own heart and that he was going to fulfill that prophecy by being a militaristic leader as David had been. And that what he was actually going to do, the way that he was going to bring salvation to Israel is that he was going to overthrow their political enemies. He was going to deal with them. He was going to reestablish the kingdom of Israel that hadn't existed for many years at this point. And he was going to care for his people's needs, much as Jesus did in this particular case. So when Jesus fed the people food, it got them really excited because he, they thought, okay, this is the kind of Messiah that we're after. He's, he's feeding us. He's taking care of us. This is, this is what we want. Um, as another pastor I heard put it, what, what the people of, of um, Jesus' day, what the Jews were after was a Messiah who would give them welfare and free health care. And I, really, there is nothing new under the sun. That's, that's ge- um, genuinely what they were after. And I notice in John 6, verse 15, that, that Jesus, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, which is an ironic statement in and of itself, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. He was hesitant to perform these signs in the midst of people partially because he knew the reaction that it was going to draw out of them. It was going to play right into this fantasy that they had in their minds that Jesus or their Messiah, whoever he may be, was going to be a militaristic leader who was going to provide for their physical needs, their material needs, and that was really what was important to them. They had no desire for repentance or for someone to care for their spiritual needs, and they were going to come and make him king, and whether he wanted the job or not, they were going to make him have it, And so he's forced to withdraw. We'll pick up again in in, uh, uh, verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? They didn't understand that he had walked on water, which I'm sure is something you'll be talking about in in future weeks. Jesus answered them, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For in him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then, then they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. But I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. And this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So these people come to him the next day. And they, they said to him, how did you get here? Because they're, they're looking for him again. And they, they're, at this point, they're probably feeling like, why does this guy keep on leaving just when things are getting good? And he says to them, you're not coming after me because of the signs. You're not coming after me because you believe that I'm Messiah or that I am the Son of God. You're coming to me because you had full bellies and that made you happy and you want that again. And he's saying, don't work for this food that only lasts overnight, right? They had, he had just fed them the night before. They're already back asking for more food. He says, work for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. See, Jesus is there, and he's offering them spiritual food. He's, he's building on this motif of food that, that he has, has begun. Uh, all the way back in the Old Testament, this idea of, of bread had been building in the themes of the, the Jewish Bible, and, and he's playing on that as he gives them bread to eat. And this, this motif, this theme will find its culmination in the future at the Last Supper, not in our future, in the future from this moment, when he is sitting at the Last Supper with all his disciples, and he breaks the bread, and he says, this is my body broken for you. And, and the sign becomes yet a little bit clearer. He is the bread of life, and that bread must be broken that they might partake of it. And when they do, they would, have, they would not have been physically fed, but they will have been spiritually fed. And that's what he, he wants them to want that, and they don't. It's a tragedy that it, it, it was true then, and it's true now, that people are so enamored with material blessings. They're, they're so... Um, they're so excited about them that oftentimes they lose focus of the bigger blessings that we, we receive spiritually. Jesus is offering himself and they're asking for bread. The creator of the universe is saying, you need me, and they're saying, no, we need food. I think that if you spend any amount of time in a Christian community after a while, you'll, you'll hear people throw out a phrase, and it's three words, and it's total God thing. 
I'm not, I'm not picking on anyone. I've totally used this phrase. I know what people mean when they say it. They're talking about being really amazed because they saw God's providence in a powerful way happen in their life. But what I notice about it is that when people use that phrase, they're typically talking about something that happened that has to do with their material life. You know, they'll say, like, I was, in, I, was, I was outside Elko, Nevada in the middle of nowhere, and my car broke down, and after five minutes, a wrecker happened to pass by. It was a total God thing. Or they might say, um, we didn't know how we were going to pay the bills this month. We had no other reasonable source to expect income to come from, and we had bills due, and then this sudden windfall came down, and we were able to make it, and it was a total God thing. You know, they're so excited about these things, and that's good. We should thank God when he cares for us in that way. It, was, it would have been wrong for the, these people to be ungrateful to Jesus for providing them the bread that they needed to eat. But this is what I never hear. I never hear people say, I met this guy the other day, and his name's Jesse. And Jesse used to spiritually be dead in his trespasses and sins. And Jesse was totally obsessed with the idols of his heart, and he spent all his time and his energy and his passions on himself, and he didn't care about other people only so much as, as when they entered into that equation, when he could use them for something that he wanted. And he was dead, and he was headed for a second death that would be the eternal death. But God worked miraculously in Jesse's heart. And in the Holy Spirit, he brought conviction into his life, and he brought repentance. And that repentance has turned him away from himself and towards God, who ought to be Lord over his heart. And now he, he lives for someone else. He's following after Jesus. I never hear people tell stories like that and say that that is a total God thing. And I think that that's a reflection of this temptation that we have in our hearts to be so in love with the material that we miss the miraculous that happens in us spiritually. Regardless of what your situation is, what need you have, what, what disability you might have, what disease you might struggle with, what financial problems that you might have, if you are following Jesus, the greatest miracle that God could ever do in your life has been done because you were dead and now you're alive. You were headed for a second death, and now you're headed for eternal life with the giver of life. My prayer for the, the church in America and at large is that we would become people who get so excited about that, that we would thank God, yes, for the material things that he does for us, but that we would over, overflow with gratefulness for the God who has done this in our hearts, and that would be the motivation that we have to, to share this news with other people that the bread of life has come down and been broken for us in our place and that we have a chance to take on his righteousness as our own and that when God looks on Jesse now, even though he still struggles with sin, he looks at him through a veil of Christ's blood and he says, justified. That's good news. In closing, I want to talk about the, the response of the, of two different uh, parties, two different groups of people, the apostles and the crowd, to what Jesus has said to them about being the bread of life. Because when, when you come to the Bible and you open it and you ask the question, who is Jesus? You have to be prepared for the Bible to ask you a question, who are you in relation to Jesus? And what we see 
going on in, the, in the, the, this passage in John is that the crowd is put off by what they consider to be crass language. Jesus talking about himself as being bread that they have to eat. Even if he's being symbolic, it's, it's uncouth to talk about uh, cannibalism in that way. And they get annoyed, and when they find out that he's not going to feed them again, and he's not going to raise an army, and he's not going to sack Rome, they go on about their business. They leave. And then we see he turns to the disciples... And and in verse 60, we pick up, When many of his disciples heard it, they said to him, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but but there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who, who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And this is why he, and, and he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. The, the response of the disciples is that they declare Jesus to be Lord and God, that they understand who he is and that they're going to follow him, even at this moment when things get terribly bleak. Because if, if we understand things from their perspective, he had, he had been building this following, and things were going really well, and these disciples who had gotten in on the ground floor, so to speak, were probably very excited. And then he goes and, in their minds, perhaps, screws the whole thing up and loses all of their followers. It's like he had scared off their entire church body. And he, sa- and he, he turns to them and he says, what do you want to do? Do you want to leave or are you going to stay with me? And their response is that they are going to follow him because they don't have anywhere else to go. They understand that there's no one else to lead them. If, if no one else understands who he is and what he has come to do, they do. And I guess the, the question that the passage presents us with tonight is, who are we in relation to Jesus? When he declares himself to be the bread of life broken for us, are we going to partake of him or are we going to say, I really don't need that, and walk away. My prayer for each one of you is that you would partake of of what he's offering, even himself. Let's pray. Father, your grace is, is so incredible. It is so scandalous how much you love us and, and how much you Uh, have poured in throughout history into redeeming for yourself a people who would know you as you meant for us to know you and who would follow you as you meant for us to follow you. Tonight, Lord, I pray that the gospel would take hold in our lives for those who don't know you for the first time, that you would bring conviction into their heart, that they would turn and see Jesus for who he truly is, and that they would resolve to follow him and for those of us who, who already know him, Lord, would you strengthen that resolve and that w- would you daily work in our lives through the power of the gospel to make us more and more like him, that those of us who you have declared justified, who you have declared holy through his blood, would be made so more and more truly through, through the Holy Spirit as you work in our lives. We ask all these things in his name. Amen.